Good morning. Good morning to those of you here, and hopefully good morning to those of you who are on the live stream. I hope it's still working. Um, I, was, I just thought I'd throw out a little bit of perspective there. Um, you know, every one of us uses technology every day, and most of the time uh, it doesn't bother us. I mean, we all understand you're using a car, which is a piece of technology, and from time to time it gets a flat tire, and you deal with it, and you go on. And uh, so when we come to stuff like uh, our live stream and stuff, it's, it's exactly the same. We, we use it, it's useful to us, and from, from time to time it has a problem, and we deal with it and go on. So, so uh, I just was thinking about that. Um, but I am actually encouraged this week uh, for a couple of reasons. One is because um, we have a problem. Uh, for, for, uh, for weeks, we uh, had our, our attendance um, limitations, and we were sitting here with, with 20 to 30 people in the building, and that's fine, that's good, we were doing it. The last two weeks, we've, we've been having many more people than we can legally have in the building wanting to be here. And so I'm encouraged by, by that uh, tremendously for two reasons. One is because it means that, that, that all of us are just starting to uh, decide it's time to, to move on with our lives and, and, and relax a little bit. And the other reason is because um, it means that we still have something here that people want to participate in. And so, uh, so that's encouraging. And uh, there's a couple of proposals that are coming to the board for how to deal with the fact our attendance limitations and allow as many people as want to be here to be here with us. And so uh, we'll be discussing those things at the board meeting and uh, be patient with us, be patient with one another as we try to, uh, to do what's, what we believe is right and, um, and um, move forward in that way. Let's take a moment now to pray. Lord, we are indeed grateful. Uh, it's been a a period of time where, where we hear so many people complaining and uh, some of the complaints we agree with and some we disagree and, uh, and yet we have so much to be thankful for. Uh, we've had a mild winter despite the recent cold weather. Uh, we've had, uh, despite severe and, and heartbreaking losses, we've had uh, good health for many of us. Uh, we've had uh, your word constantly before us if we choose to engage with it. We've had our friendships. Uh, you're, you're always good to us, as you have promised. Lord, we, we know that there are some people who are, are not here, not because of our limitations, but because of, of physical difficulties and, and sicknesses. And so, Lord, we, we just uh, pour out our hearts for those people. And I just invite all of you here listening to add some names to the list of those that you would pray for their health, that they would be encouraged in their sickness, that they would... Uh, that they would come to know Jesus in an intimate way as they struggle in this way. But even beyond that, Lord Jesus, that you would heal their bodies and their souls. Lord, we're reminded of, of many places in the world that, uh, that have great difficulties. Um, a friend of mine, a pastor in Cold Lake, whose family is in Zimbabwe, and uh, just, uh, just people dying... Uh, Seemingly every day, uh, he has to attend a all-night a funeral in the middle of the night online. 
Uh, Lord, I pray for those places and those people and those churches that don't have health care systems to deal with a situation like this. Uh, Lord, we, we, we know of, of, of family members and friends, of our friends and church members from Mexico who have had to deal with, with, uh, with COVID on a whole different level. Uh, and so we, we just pray for them. We pray for their spiritual care. We pray for their health. Uh, we pray for their grief. And Lord, uh, we're reminded by our, our sister Elsabet uh, in, in Africa, from Africa as well as, as uh, her family members in refugee camps and, and, uh, and, and just ter- unimaginable difficulties for those of us here in Canada. Lord, we pray. We pray that as we pray for the church, our brothers and sisters around the world in difficult circumstances, that we would become overwhelmed with gratefulness for the things you've given us and that we would not use the freedoms and resources that we have uh, only for our own pleasure, but that we would find ways, not out of duty, but out of joy to share. And so we pray, though our hearts are heavy from certain things, we pray with thanksgiving that you have given us so much. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this morning we want to open our Bibles to the book of James, and James has often been uh, referred to in a in the context of uh, Paul has one message in one gospel, and James has a different message, and maybe even a different gospel. And um, obviously, well, maybe it's not obvious, but but I've never agreed with that that they're teaching a different thing. Uh, but there's even been whole books published uh, about this this supposed contradiction. And I'll just uh, acknowledge that with a few verses uh, because I think it helps us get into the message of James to, to, to contrast it. Uh, from last week, Galatians chapter 6, I mean chapter 5, verse 6, For when we place our faith in Christ Jesus, there is no benefit in being circumcised or being uncircumcised. What is important is faith expressing itself in love. And then the Apostle Paul again in Romans 1, verse 17. This good news tells us how God makes us right in his sight. This is accomplished from start to finish by faith. As the scripture says, it is through faith that, right, that a righteous person has life. And then probably the most emphatic passage of all from Ephesians chapter 2. God saved you by his grace when you believed. And you can't take credit for this. It's a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done, so none of us can boast about it. For we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus, so we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. And then from James we have this. So you say you have faith, for you believe that there is one God. Good for you. Even the demons believe this, and they tremble in terror. How foolish! Can't you see that faith without good deeds is useless? How are we to understand this? Uh, I, I believe that, um, that maybe it's a little bit like a teeter-totter. Uh, Paul puts the weight down on this side, and James puts the weight down on that side, but it's, it's one one thing, and the, the fulcrum point is Jesus Christ 
and uh, we need the balance there. That's not a full view of it, but we're going to dive into it a little bit. James was written by the half-brother of Jesus. So perhaps James knew Jesus and his teaching better than any of the others who'd been with him for just three years. Uh, we can, I think, safely assume that, that James played with Jesus as a boy. They learned carpentry together. Uh, maybe they discussed all these things uh, as they grew up together. Uh, we know for certain that Jesus was teaching with great wisdom at a very young age in the temple that, that astounded the, the Sadducees and the Pharisees and the other teachers of the law in the temple. So obviously he was thinking about these things and talking about them from a young age. Uh, but we have no record that James and Jesus as young boys talked about uh, all this stuff. But uh, the thing that we have in the book of James is, um, is James references probably at least 20 times the Sermon on the Mount. And so he's, he's writing something to the Christians in Palestine uh, that, in, in which he's reminding them of what Jesus taught. And kind of taking what Jesus taught and applying it to the specific things that they were struggling with or dealing with. Um, perhaps this is a good time to talk a little bit about um, the dating of biblical books. Because James is one that's a little bit ambiguous and there's different debates about when he wrote it. And I've put them in an order. Uh, and and uh, if you have a study Bible or have reference notes at the beginning of the books of your Bible, your Bible might say that James is written at the end of the life of James, and, um, and that's in contradiction where I'm suggesting it's written now in the early parts of the New Testament story. And uh, ultimately, in my understanding, as I've looked at the literature, I don't think we can come to an absolute conclusion about which of those is right. I've chosen to put it here for specific reasons. Now, the main argument, uh, unlike some other biblical books, James makes no reference to actual historical events that we can date it by. So we can't internally from his writing tell when he wrote it uh, specifically. And, uh, and James is, uh, like some of Paul's letters are actually mentioned uh, in other places in the New Testament. And so we can kind of be pretty, pretty clear about that. He mentions his own letters in other letters. Uh, so, so, uh, but with James, we don't have that. So we have to look at what's written, in, what he wrote, and try to fit it into a historical context of where we think this would have been the response. And so the traditional view has been that because James references the, the Sermon on the Mount so many times, he must have written his letter after the Gospels were written. And we know that Luke and Matthew that, that, that have the Sermon on the Mount in them were written much later. So, so that's, that's a really good argument, and maybe it's the right one. Uh, the argument for placing it here, as I have done, is, is that... Um, taking into account the way people taught information in the first century. So, for example, um, if James is writing, or, or if, if James and Peter and Paul and Barnabas and all these men who had uh, been with Jesus, well, Paul hadn't been while he was teaching in, in Jerusalem and Galilee, but he had uh, met Jesus post-resurrection in visions, uh, but but these these people who knew Jesus teaching well uh, were were bringing this information to a largely illiterate population, and so writing something down and then giving it to them was of little value. 
there might have been a, a person or two that could read it, but what, what, how teaching was not just, not just in the Gospels or not just in the church, but, but how teaching that was meant for the general public was done in those days, as is still common in illiterate countries. Uh, the, the information is packaged into small, uh, memorizable units. So when you read the Gospels, that's what you get, right? You get a parable, and then you get another parable with no story in between. And then you get an anecdote or a, a little bit of narrative, but it's clearly packaged into a story. You get a little bit of teaching. Uh, Jesus taught this, and it usually has a vivid illustration that helps you remember it. And so these were little packages of truth from what Jesus taught that, that they would, you know, if you were preaching in... in uh, in Antioch, or if you were preaching in, in Tarshish, or, or if you went to Bethlehem, or if you went, you know, you, you would have these in your memory bank, and given the situation, you would pull a few different of these uh, little packages of teaching that Jesus taught, and, and put them together into a, into a teaching. And so, only later on, when the apostles knew that they were going to pass on, and they needed to preserve these teachings for future generations. Did they write them down into the Gospels? So, Paul in Galatians, writing to the Gentile Christians who had not yet absorbed this type of teaching, didn't reference it. Whereas James, writing to the Palestinian Christians from the Jerusalem church dispersed through persecution, was talking to people who already would have had these little packets of truth that they could know and remember, and when he references them in his book, they'd know what he's referencing. At least that's... And then the other thing is, um, when I read James, it, it fits the context of coming after, uh, during the same period as Galatians, and coming after, um, after the Jerusalem Council. So I can't be sure of that with this book. There's other books that we're much more sure of when they were written. So I've just chosen... I think it's a good balance, Galatians and then James, and it, 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 it fits. But dating the biblical books can be a little bit challenging, um, and some will disagree with one another. Anyways, I probably went on too long about that, uh, but here's the situation. Uh, historically, uh, you can look it up in chapter 8 in The Greatest Story Ever on our website, where I've kind of laid out the, the background for, for these, these series. Um, but when, if James wrote uh, this letter at this point in time, it was a point in time when there was severe persecution uh, in Palestine among the Jewish Christians. Uh, the Gentile church wasn't severely persecuted yet because it just wasn't large enough to have made an impact and the Roman authorities just hadn't noticed it. But in Jerusalem and surrounding areas in Palestine, the religious authorities were trying to stamp out the church. They didn't like this this, uh, this, in their opinion, perversion of the Jewish teaching and tradition and religion, and they were trying to stamp it out. So James writes to encourage the church across this area, the Jewish Christians and these churches across the Holy Land. And there was another thing going on historically at the time, which tends to happen um, when political systems change. And under the Roman system, uh, increasingly, uh, wealthy people were buying up the land and then hiring the previous landowners as paid labor to work the land. So things don't change much, do that. That's an issue for some of us here in Alberta today. Uh, but 
But in those days, it was particularly egregious because the, the Jewish people had the system going all the way back to Numbers, the book of Numbers, where each family had a allotted piece of land and that was their inheritance, that was their gift from God, that was part of their religious duty and, and responsibility to take care of the family hereditary land. And now it was being bought by foreigners and some wealthy Jewish people, even ones in the church, were participating in, the, in this economic uh, reality. So you had some people in the, in the Jewish church that were very wealthy and were hiring others to work the land that traditionally, according to the law of Moses, should have been their own land. And so this was causing tremendous difficulties and, and controversies. And, and uh, this is probably part of the reason why um, we have Paul giving the collection for the Jerusalem church because the, Jerus the Christians in this area had their land pulled out from under them and therefore their wealth and their ability to, to make a living. So anyways, that's all, uh, we, we kind of gather that from extra-biblical sources that that was happening, but it makes sense with what James writes because he talks a lot about, about the relationship between the wealthy and the poor in the church in particular. Uh, there's also rumors at this time uh, that Paul has corrupted the faith. He's come to Jerusalem, they had the Jerusalem Council, and this letter comes out that says, uh, we don't require all the law for, for the uh, for the Gentile believers. And so the Jewish believers are taking that in two directions. Some are saying that's a perversion and Paul has perverted the gospel and we need to combat that and bring the law back into the church. And others are saying, okay, then we can live however we want. There's no morality at all. Jesus saved us. We don't. doesn't matter what we do here on earth. And so both of those things were going on and causing problems in the church. And uh, it expressed itself as we read the book of James. He talks a lot about our tongues, about our speech. It expresses itself in hypercritical, controversial speech with one another inside the church. And so uh, he writes this little letter to the people, the, to the Christian, the Jewish Christians throughout Palestine addressing these issues. And he uses the Sermon on the Mount that I think would have been in their memories. Uh, if you were in that area, we know that the people who were in Jerusalem and in the, on, at Galilee when, when Jesus taught these things, they were dispersed to all these churches. And so you very well might have had someone in your church, if you were in a, a recipient of James's letter, who had been on the side of the mountain when Jesus spoke these things. And... Uh, Anyways, we can talk uh, in private about some of these things if, if that's interesting to you. But I want to do an illustration, and uh, it's a little bit dangerous. I'm a little bit nervous because people are going to be watching me. Uh, so we'll see how it goes. I'm not very good at this. We'll give it a try. I don't know if I'm just showing off or if it's an illustration. The point I'm trying to make is this. I can tell you how to ride a unicycle in one sentence. It's really not difficult. What you do is you begin to allow the bike to fall down. And then you use the pedals to keep from falling. That's it. Get that and you can ride it. I actually believe that just about any one of you, if your hips and knees work, that's not everyone I guess, but just about every one of you could learn it. 
So that sounds easy enough, right? But if that's all I tell you, I'm missing a big piece because the big piece is this. When you let it start to fall, it usually does go all the way. And it's going to take you probably a whole summer of falling over and over and over and over again for weeks on end, practicing most days. And everyone I know, I know there's a few exceptions because some people are more coordinated than, than me, but everyone I know that's learned to ride a unicycle, the first one has fallen so many times you have to throw it in the garbage before you actually learn. And then you buy a new one and now you can ride it. So there's a lot to it. But the actual process is less complicated than a two-wheeled bicycle. Because in a two-wheeled, you have to learn to pedal, pedal, balance, steer. There's many more things. Here it's just one thing. Let it start to fall and then catch it before it gets there. That's it. While steering is a little more complicated. But the, the, the point is, you can describe something, and it, what you've described is absolutely true. But yet to actually then do what's been described, there's some content to it. And that's what we have here. In Galatians last week, we were I emphasized what I think is the key verse in Galatians, which is, for in Christ Jesus... No, sorry. That's, I'm on the wrong page on my notes. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. Meaning, if you add anything to the gospel, it's a perversion. It's not the same gospel anymore. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. And uh, we, we today, but Christians throughout the ages, have always had this situation where we want to add the things that feel comfortable in my culture to the faith. The box that I live in, I don't want to step outside of it and say, yeah, the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. I want you to step inside and be like me before I'm going to accept you as one who has accepted the gospel. But Paul is emphatic on that point. He calls that the antithesis, the opposite the Antichrist. Doesn't mean I shouldn't live the way I'm comfortable in the culture and language and, and traditions that I have. It just means I need to be very careful that I don't add something to the gospel when I bring it to other people. But that's last week's message. I shouldn't repeat it. So, if that's the unicycle, if, if that's the description, you let it fall and then you catch it, then what's the content What's the summer long of practice? Well, the book of James fills in the content. What does it mean? What does that look like when faith is expressing itself through love? Well, I can describe that to you very easily. Just open your Bible to James chapter 2, verse 14, and here is what it means. This is what faith expressing itself through love looks like in real life. What good is it, dear brothers and sisters, if you say you have faith, but you don't show it by your actions? Can that kind of faith save anyone? Suppose you see a brother or sister who has no food or clothing, and you say, goodbye and have a good day, stay warm and eat well. 
But then you don't give that person any food or clothing. What good does that do? So you see, faith by itself isn't enough. Unless it produces good deeds, it is dead and useless. Now someone may argue, some people have faith, others have good deeds. But I say, how can you show me your faith if you don't have good deeds? I will show you my faith by my good deeds. You say you have faith, or you believe that there is one God. Good for you. Even the demons believe this, and they tremble in terror. How foolish. Can't you see that faith without good deeds is useless? Don't you remember that our ancestor Abraham was shown to be right with God by his actions when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see, his faith and his actions worked together. His actions made his faith complete. And so it happened, just as the scriptures say, Abraham believed God, and God counted him as righteous because of his faith. He was even called the friend of God. So you see, we are shown to be right with God by what we do, not by faith alone. Rahab, the prostitute, is another example. She was shown to be right with God by her actions when she hid those messengers and sent them away, safely away by a different road. Just as the body is dead without breath, so also faith is dead without good works. You see how that fills it out? That's what it means. That's what faith expressing itself in love means. That's what it looks like in the world. So I'm going to summarize it this way. In James, God says, Your faith is defined by your actions. The two examples he gives, James gives, are, are um, opposites, aren't they? Abraham and a prostitute. So Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness, as Paul says in Romans. But then God said, go and sacrifice your son through whom I've said the promise will come. And he did it. Meaning he believed the scriptures tell us that God would raise Isaac from the dead because God would not break his promise. Didn't have to because God provided a substitute, a picture of Jesus. But his faith was was evident in his actions. Now the prostitute Rahab in in Jericho, before the walls fell, when the spies came in, she didn't first clean up her life, stop doing tricks, uh, get better clothes. You know, she didn't first do any of that. She looked out from her window at the people of God and she said, I believe that God. And then when she saw the spies in the street, she took them in. And she let let them escape by a different way. She first believed, she first had faith, but her faith caused actions. Now if she said, oh, I believe, but then she hadn't done the other thing, do you think her little portion of the wall would have been preserved and her family saved? That's not real faith. Faith results in actions. So here's Here's a little emphasis. This is probably not the main point, but I want to make this point. 
The thing that we call legalism, I don't know what that word means to you, but I'll tell you what it means to me. It means lacking in faith. You remember Jesus in the boat asleep when the storm was raging and the disciples were trying to save the boat and they woke him up. How can you sleep when we're about to die? And he calmed the storm and he said, you have little faith. Why are you afraid? Why are you afraid that I'm not going to do what I said I would do? Why do you think you have to do all this other stuff when I've already promised that you would be my disciples? And that's what, that's what I do. I'm not going to put this on anyone else, but this is what I do. And it's a struggle. It's a constant thing. I look at someone else, and they say they're a Christian, and they say they have faith, but they don't look or dress or act exactly like I think a Christian should. Now, I know in my head that the Bible says that if they put their faith in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit has come to their life, and God will transform them into His likeness. But I don't believe it. So I go into their life and try to transform them into the likeness that I think should be there. And it ends up being just like me. I try to make them to be like me. Whereas the Holy Spirit is going to make them, has promised, has told us, He will make them into the likeness of His Son. Maybe not on my timetable, Maybe in their life that's going to be expressed differently than it's being expressed in my life. But that's what legalism is. It's a lack of faith. I don't believe God will do what He said He would do, so I do it for Him. So I make the rules, I make the list, and I go to the person and say, conform to this or you're not a Christian. That's legalism. It means I don't have faith. It means I don't believe that God will answer my prayers. It means I don't believe that God will do what he said he would do. And so I try to do it instead. Maybe rather I should go to that person and, and get to know them in a relationship. Maybe they know, they know things of God that I don't, and I could learn from them. Maybe I know things of God that they don't know, and they could learn from me. And in an actual real relationship, we could grow together into the likeness of Christ. But instead I put up a wall and say, until you, you do this and this and this, you're not in. It means I don't believe that God will do what he says he will do. Well, that's a little sermon inside a sermon, but it's convicting to me. So James is confronting uh, these Christians these Jewish Christians who are struggling with this new thing that has come out that says um, Gentile Christians aren't going to be required to meet the standards of the religious law. And he wants to assure them. And he wants to make a distinction between the, between, um, the law of faith and the law of works. 
And he references Jesus' teaching on the Sermon on the Mount. And maybe he did write it at the end of his life and was looking at the Gospel of Matthew as he wrote. I don't know. But it makes sense to me here. Let's just go real quick through some of these some of these things. So in, in, uh, in, in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 5, 46 and 48, uh, Jesus talks about favoritism versus love, which is, was a big issue in the church J- James was speaking to. And so he makes reference to that. He doesn't quote it directly because I don't think it was written yet. But he makes reference to that teaching and then he ends each of these little pieces of teaching in his writing with a memorizable phrase. And this is what it is here. There will be no mercy for those who have not shown mercy to others. But if you have mercy, God will be merciful when he judges you. So I'm not going to go into these in detail. These are for you to read the the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew and then read the book of James and just kind of put it all together. But here's another example. Uh, Both James and Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount reference genuine faith is doing what you believe. And he summarizes it like this. Just as the body is dead without breath, so faith is dead without good works. Uh, Both Jesus and James refer to the tongue and how we use it and abuse it. You can't draw fresh water from a salty spring, is how James ends that teaching. Um, True and false wisdom. Peacemakers will plant seeds of peace and reap a harvest of righteousness. A divided heart. Humble yourself before the Lord, and he will lift you up in honor. Condemning others. God alone, who gave the law, is the judge. He alone has the power to save or to destroy. So what right do you have to judge your neighbor? Arrogance of wealth. It is sin to know what you ought to do and then not do it. The danger of wealth. You have condemned and killed innocent people who did not resist you patience and endurance you know about job a man of great endurance you can see how the lord was kind to him at the end for the lord is filled with tenderness and mercy telling the truth that your yes be yes and your no be no faith-filled prayer he prayed again the sky sent down rain and the earth began to yield its crops restoring others Whoever brings the sinner back from the wandering will save that person from death and bring about the forgiveness of many sins. So that's just an example of how how James brings the, 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 the same ideas as the Sermon on the Mount. And I think what he's, uh, what he's doing with that is he's reassuring the Jewish Christians. No, the, the, the law is still valuable. Because look at what Jesus did with it. Jesus fulfilled the law... And because of the good news, we can say to the Gentiles, you don't have to be circumcised, you don't have to, you can eat pork if you want to, you can, you know, you don't have to keep the law in that religious way. But listen to what Jesus said. When he talked about, uh, for example, adultery, the law said, the law of Moses that you're so concerned about, said do not commit adultery. But Jesus said, don't even look with lust upon a woman. He didn't, he didn't lessen it. He made it more stringent. When Jesus, when the law said, forgive your neighbor seven times, and Jesus said, 70 times seven. The law says, don't murder. Jesus said, don't even, don't even say a bad word about your brother, or you've already murdered them. 
So, you, so it's an uneasy feeling. And, and Galatians 5, 6 gives us the, that condensed version. The only thing that matters is faith expressing itself in love. And then James fills that in and says, go back to Jesus' teaching. He doesn't say you can do whatever you want. He says doing the right things doesn't earn you grace. He did that on the cross. And so, in James, God says, your faith is defined by what you do. I think it's quite easy to understand with a picture like this. You see, on the top line, you receive the gifts. They're 100% yours. You receive them, you open them up, you unpack them, You follow the instructions, plant the trees, water them, do the work, and what happens is you get fruit. The fruit of the Spirit is how it's described. On the other side, on the bottom side, you work and work and work, hoping that you'll work hard enough and do good enough work that God will give you the gifts. Unfortunately, it's never possible. For if you break one law, even the smallest one, you're guilty of them all. And so no matter how hard we work, we'll never receive the gifts if that's how we get them. But we're reminded by James that even before the law was given, and we're reminded by Paul, even before the law was given, Abraham received the promise by faith. And then we read the story of his life, how that promise slowly and through much struggle became a reality. But first we receive the gift. And then out of gratitude and joy and blessing, we spend the summer practicing. I think when it comes to holiness, it's going to take me a little more than a summer, a little longer than riding a unicycle to unpack it. There's still stuff in the boxes I haven't taken out. There's still blessings, there's still gifts, there's still generosity from God that that I haven't pulled out of the boxes yet, but it's all been given. And uh, it's it's just up to me to to do it. Um, I was thinking about that this morning and thinking, you know, uh, one thing I hate is when someone in my family brings home a box from Ikea. Because usually I'm the one that ends up having to put it together. But 
When I received exactly the chair I wanted under the Christmas tree from Ikea, I couldn't wait for all the other presents to get opened up so I could put that thing together and sit on it. It's different when it's a gift. It's just different. And we get it backwards. It's just not possible to get to the gift if we have to earn it. None of us are good enough. But we receive the gift of salvation by faith. And then we work it out into our lives through love. The love that we have received, we put into practice among the people we know. And that fills it up, finishes it up. When we do it out of duty, out of that lack of faith perspective, uh, it becomes a drudgery. It becomes a burden. It becomes death. The law brings death. But Jesus Christ brings life. We were dead in our trespasses and sins because we were trying so hard to earn the gift without realizing that Jesus was freely giving it if we would just take the hands of faith and open it up. And yeah, it's going to take the rest of our lives and beyond to unpack and put into practice and fully receive everything that's in those boxes. But that's what we're about. And the result is fruit. In Galatians, God says, Oh, sorry. oh I didn't. I got the wrong slide there. Go back to this one. In James, God says, Your faith is dis- defined by your actions. Let us be people of faith. I'm going to pray to close the service this morning. Um, I've also chosen a video for you guys to watch and, and a song to go with um, our closing just to, just to focus your thoughts and focus your attention to faith this week as you go and, and to put it into practice as you live your lives day to day. And I hope, it, I hope it speaks to you as it did to me this morning. It actually wasn't the song I was going to use this morning. had a change of plans last minute because I just felt this one spoke to me a little more. Let's pray and close the service. Lord, your word is a lamp to our feet, and it's a light to our path. Thank you that we can live in your light and walk in your truth. May the things that you have revealed and dwell in our hearts, help it to dwell in our hearts and to stir us into action. Be with us as we go from this place and bring us back in unity. We ask all this in your precious name of Jesus. Amen.